Good morning again, everyone. My name's Dougal. Let me add my welcome to Rogers. It's terrific to have you with us. Uh, we're going to be thinking about that passage in Acts chapter 20. If you've got your Bible, keep it open there. But I want you, before we get to that, to imagine that for the rest of eternity, you're going to be remembered as the person that fell asleep during a sermon. <laughs> because that's what happened just before that reading from Acts chapter 20. It's late in the evening. The Apostle Paul is preaching and Luke records for us that, Luke, uh, that uh, Paul is preaching on and on. Sitting at the window, a guy called Eutychus, one of those names that never really took off. Anyhow, Eutychus falls asleep. Okay, well, we've all done that. So, okay, that's sort of not really a big problem, except Eutychus falls out the window, which is on the third floor, and he dies. Now, I've had someone fall out of their chair while I was preaching. And apart from the kind of personal crisis of reeling, yes, you know, my preaching really is that boring, you've got the more pressing issue, do you push on or do you call an ambulance? <laughs> Undeterred, Paul goes downstairs, raises Eutychus from the dead, climbs back up the stairs and continues preaching from midnight through to sunrise. So next time you complain about me going on too long, give thanks for small mercies, I'll have you out of here by lunchtime. Tomorrow. <laughs> but instead of focusing on Eutychus, as fun as that might be, we're going to consider that moment when Paul meets the Ephesian elders for the last time. Paul's leaving for Jerusalem. They're never going to see him again. And as Paul hands over responsibility for the Ephesian church to these people, the question becomes, how can this little church survive? Particularly when you remember just a few days before, the whole city of Ephesus was in uproar against Paul because of his message about the Lord Jesus Christ. How can this little church possibly survive? much less grow. How can any church survive and grow? Here's my summary. I reckon churches flourish then and now through the ongoing, comprehensive, prayerful, diligent, faithful, servant-hearted and widespread application of God's life-transforming word. Paul confirms as much, verse 32, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Why does he do that? Because the word of his grace will build you up, you plural, the church. And it will give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified, all those who are being saved. We'll see that the Ephesian church was established by the power of God's word and it will be by the power of that same word that the Ephesian church will survive and grow. So I'm going to pray and we're going to take a closer look at chapter 20. Would you do that with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your life-giving word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us in all truth, our counsellor. And Father, we pray in thanksgiving for this time this morning that we've set aside. We pray that as we hear your word would we be doers of your word? And we ask that through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you've got your news sheet there and you want to take some notes, there's a sermon outline in the middle there. Um, while you're looking that up, the book of Luke in the Bible, rather the, the book of Acts written by Luke in the Bible, it's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. It describes the beginning of the early church. And by chapter 20 of the book of Acts, a, a pattern has emerged First it was Peter, now it's Paul. They would enter a city, 
And in words very similar to verse 21 that explain how everyone must turn to God in repentance. What does that mean? It means turn back. Everyone must turn to God in repentance and they must have faith or trust, belief, reliance in our Lord Jesus. That was their message. That through the sacrificial death of his son, God has made forgiveness possible. And in case you haven't, that invitation still stands, by the way. Turn back to God, admit your sin, put your trust in the Lord Jesus and receive his gift of eternal life. That was their message. But we've seen this good news, as they called it, repeatedly rejected. The apostles persecuted, violence breaking out, but some believed. That's been the pattern. There's a map up here. You can see from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, Antioch, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and now Ephesus, this has been the pattern. For the past three years now, Paul has been the founder and lead pastor of the church in Ephesus, but now he's leaving. How can this church survive? How can any church hope to survive? But more than that, how can any church hope to grow? Well, they're the questions that we're going to be looking at. I've divided our passage into two parts, which is a bit of a cheat, because if you look at the outline, I've divided it into three. But just run with me. The first one is follow my example in life. Follow verse 18. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, writes Paul, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Church communities thrive on consistency. Consistency of message matched with consistency of living. You know how I lived, says Paul. It's a bold statement and it's a powerful statement. And it's so powerful because it's made against the backdrop of three years of living with this guy. There's an observable experience. Now, Paul's not perfect. You've only got to read his letters to know that. But as he hands responsibility for ministry in Ephesus to these elders, he points out that a culture of integrity is going to be critical for the survival of this church. And integrity is exactly what Paul has modelled. The man who taught in public, verse 20, is the same man who would visit your house and teach you in private. And so for the Ephesian church to survive and grow, they're going to need to follow Paul's example. They're going to need to follow that settled pattern of humble, honest, accountable, determined service. Verse 19, I served the Lord with great humility, and he did, and with tears and in the midst of severe testing. That said, while it's important to highlight the importance of character on the culture of a church, what exactly does Paul expect these people to do? But if this church is going to survive and grow, what pattern of ministry will they need to follow? Well, again, Paul lays out example. Verse 20, you know, again, he appeals to their experience, you know that I've not hesitated. What didn't he hesitate to do? To preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks, which is everybody, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Preaching, teaching, declaring. This 
is how the Ephesian church was established. Verse 20, Paul preaches everything that will be helpful. Paul teaches in public and in small groups. In verse 21, Paul declares. It's the pattern, by the way, that's found in the rest of the passage. If you've got a Bible open there, verse 24, Paul describes the purpose of his life as a testimony to the good news. Verse 25, he reminds these Ephesians again of his preaching about the kingdom. Verse 27, he reminds them that he has proclaimed to them the whole will of God. Verse 31, he warns them against false teaching. So what do we have? Preaching, teaching, declaring, testifying, proclaiming and defending what? God's word. Which means the fundamental ministry activity the fundamental ministry activity that will enable the Ephesian church to grow is what? It's the ongoing, comprehensive, diligent, faithful, servant-hearted and widespread application of God's life-transforming word. And it's the same for us. That's why we open the Bible in our public meetings. It's why at our parish council meetings we begin with a devotion from God's word. It's why in our staff meetings we read and reflect on the passage for the week ahead. It's why we encourage people to join midweek growth groups. We're trying to get one starting on Tuesday night if you're keen. It's why we train our epic kids to think biblically. Now I can tell there's somebody here thinking, gosh, that's boring, no wonder Eutychus went to sleep. There's got to be more to growing our church, doesn't there? We've got to take action. Fair enough. So let's play out a scenario. Someone comes to me and they point their finger. This church, whoever that is, this church needs a mission mindset. Sounds important, doesn't it? Meant to furrow your brow at this point and nod furiously. Yes, we need a mission mindset. Now, I'm inclined to agree, by the way, but I would ask in return, how? How does a church develop a culture or a mission mindset? How does that happen? Is it because the minister says so? Well, that might get you compliance, but I don't think it's going to get you a culture of a mission mindset. And, you know, based on some conferences I've attended, I think you could be forgiven that for thinking that church growth is a matter of following a sophisticated ministry strategy. Yet as important as ministry planning is, did you notice Paul says nothing about strategy here? Doesn't even rate a mention. Because a culture of mission, a mission mindset, it's a result. It's an outcome. It's the fruit of applying God's life-transforming words so that people have a bigger picture of who Jesus is, a bigger picture of Jesus' plans and purposes for this world, and a bigger picture of how we are caught up in that. That's how you develop a mission mindset. Give people a bigger picture of Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Okay, but surely if our church is going to survive and grow, we need to be relevant don't we, to, to modern Australians? Don't know. Depends what you think. Uh, depends what you mean by that. I might be inclined to agree with you, but again, 
you could be forgiven for thinking that becoming relevant depends on having hip preachers who wear expensive sneakers and roast their own coffee or on slick services that are so professional you're not sure whether you're at church or in a Broadway musical. Now, hear me say, I'm not knocking all of those things. I'm knocking some of them, but not all of them. Nor am I endorsing mediocrity, by the way. But it's all made to sound so glamorous and so impressive. Yet when it comes to Paul's pattern of establishing, sustaining and growing churches, I'm not sure that I'd be reaching for words like glamorous or impressive, at least not in the worldly sense of those words anyway. Instead, what we do find is a pattern of humble, long-term, sometimes messy, maybe often messy, grassroots, every member ministry. That's his pattern, where together the whole church community is encouraged, comforted, instructed, challenged, motivated how? By the ongoing application of God's word about Jesus Christ. And for you and me, what will that look like? Well, it'll look like a variety of things. It'll be meeting over coffee one-on-one, reading the Bible together. It'll be joining a small group where someone opens their home that together you might sit under God's word. It'll mean being part of larger meetings like this. And can I tell you that when it comes to growing churches, I say this only half tongue in cheek, I'm not sure these days the Apostle Paul would get an invite to some of our church growth conferences, ironically enough. But his pattern of growing churches, it works. But don't take my word for it. Think of the churches he started. Ephesus, Thessalonica, Corinth. Berea, Philippi, Rome. Each one established by the same pattern of humble service, the ongoing, comprehensive, diligent, prayerful, faithful, servant-hearted and widespread application of God's life-transforming word. That's the charge Paul puts to his audience. And I reckon we'd do well to follow his example in life and in ministry. And I think now, kind of, if we can treat that as a sort of an extended introduction, I think we're now ready for the twin commands that Paul gives in verse 28. It's tempting to jump straight here, but we needed that introduction. Keep watch over yourselves, he says, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Isn't that interesting? We think that leadership is our idea. They've been appointed. Who goes on, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, shepherding, that imagery of being the shepherd, it's throughout the Bible, isn't it? Psalm 23, the Lord is my... I'll try that again. Uh, wake up, Eutychus. The Lord is my... Oh, very good. King David. He's the shepherd king, isn't he? The smallest of all his brothers. Can't find him. Where is he? He's out with the sheep. John 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. 
Why? Well, because he lays down his life for the sheep. Shepherding imagery is everywhere in the Bible, but you know the commentaries, we hear comparatively less about the sheep. So you can imagine my excitement when I came across this quote by John Stott. He's a famous Bible scholar, if you don't know him. I'll admit I thought twice about including this, but I'm committed now, so here we go. Um, Just bear in mind, these are his words, not mine. He says, sheep are not at all the clean and cuddly creatures they may appear. Well, so far, so good. In fact, they are dirty, subject to unpleasant pests, and regularly need to be dipped in strong chemicals to rid them of lice, ticks, and worms. How are we doing? He's not finished. They are also unintelligent, wayward, and obstinate. And then he backpedals slightly. I hesitate to apply the metaphor too closely and characterise the people of God as dirty, lousy or stupid. (laughs) Well, he might have hesitated, but that didn't stop him, did it? Now, as long as everybody's equally offended, that's the main thing. He's warning us, isn't he? It's a warning not to be soppy or to be sentimental about this task of shepherding. This is serious business. And in a church context like this, that's a weighty responsibility. Particularly for people like Roger and me, who you have formally set aside for this task. But no less importantly, it is less formal, but no less important, as we apply this shepherding role to our army of lay leaders upon which our church depends. Well, you can begin to see why having good Christ-like shepherds amongst us is just so critically important. So let me briefly draw out a couple of observations. Look at verse 28 closely with me. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. Did you notice? So easy to skip over this. Before these spirit-appointed shepherds are told to watch over others, they are commanded to watch over themselves. You see that? Keep watch over yourself. And consider the flock under our care. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. This is his church. This is his flock. And gee, that's a good reminder, isn't it, for those moments when we feel like dipping a particular sheep in strong chemicals. Don't you reckon? These sheep for whom Christ shed his blood. Do you think it was easy to shepherd the Ephesians? Do you reckon it was easy to shepherd the Corinthians, the Bereans, the Romans, the Duralians? Because it was easy, and yet verse 17, you know how I lived, says Paul. You know. You saw me in public, you saw me in private, I didn't covet your gold or your silver. You know. And yet how often is our church burdened by people in powerful positions who exploit the flock for their own advantage? I could name names, but we'd be here a long time. People, verse 30, who draw away disciples after themselves. Isn't that interesting, what false teaching does? 
Faithful teaching creates disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful teaching matures people under the lordship of Jesus Christ. What does false teaching do? It draws away disciples after themselves in their own image. And so throughout all this, I hope you've been able to see that when it comes to establishing and growing healthy churches, there are no quick solutions here. And I want you to remember too that the size of a church gathering is but one marker of church growth. It's an important one, but it's one marker, and it's a marker of health of which the New Testament actually gives comparatively little attention. Far more attention. The kind of growth that gets mentioned more and more frequently is what? Growth in maturity. Growth in generosity. Growth in love. Growth in self-control. Growth in purity. Growth in good works. They're the markers of a healthy church, aren't they? And so when it comes to a church that's growing like this, there's no substitute for the ongoing, comprehensive, prayerful, diligent, servant-hearted and widespread application of God's life-transforming word. That's why Paul finishes, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are being sanctified. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your life-giving word about the Lord Jesus Christ. Showing us the way of salvation through faith in him. And we do pray that you'd commit us more and more to sitting humbly under your life-giving word. And that your spirit would do his work in us. That he'd transform us to be more like Jesus individually and collectively. And Father, we pray for our church that you'd take us and use us that our district would know that Jesus Christ is Lord and that they would come to put their trust in him. Father, this we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.